This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnak. Comparisons between Yugoslavia and the European Union abound. Supranational entities, sputtering integration, uneven economic development, nationalism, confederal tendencies, attempts to construct an overarching identity, and performance. Through a range of performative acts, both Yugoslavia and European Union strive, or strove, to change institutions, structures, economies, as well as behavior and practices among their peoples in order to build a certain kind of state and society. What do I mean by performative acts? In a philosophical sense, these are actions, like events or speeches, that not only describe what's happening, they change what's happening. In everyday life, these are things like pronouncing a couple married or telling someone they're fired. In terms of states, these can include marking statehood by flying the national flag or playing the national anthem, celebrating an anniversary, or any number of regular events, especially if they feature some rituals. Constructing monuments, renaming streets, youth exchange programs, relay of youth and pride parade, Day of the Republic and Europe Day. Today, I'm going to look at how Yugoslavia and the European Union performed themselves in Kosovo. Why I chose Europe's newest country will become clear soon. What I also hope will be clear throughout this episode is that, as with all my other stories about the former country, I don't have a dog in the fight. I've actually never even been to Kosovo, which is something I want to remedy in the coming months. Whether Kosovo is an independent country or it's Serbia, whether this group oppressed that group or it was the other way around, whether cars should have this license plate or that one, doesn't really interest me here today. In general, advocating any viewpoint isn't what I'm here for, or what this podcast is here for. It's a razor-thin line to walk, or perhaps to talk, but I'll sure as hell try. Cool, calm, and collected. Horses held, jets cooled. What's more important is you, the listeners. And at this juncture, I have a few to acknowledge, who have shared their appreciation and generosity with me. Alisa, Anna, Dushko, Mary, Mia, Uyum, and Zoran are the latest Patreon supporters of Remembering Yugoslavia. Emily made a generous contribution via PayPal. Thank you all for all your pledges. I can't do this without you. If you'd like to help keep remembering Yugoslavia going, be like Elisa, Anna, Dushko, Emily, Mary, Mia, Uyum, Zoran, and many other good people, and support Remembering Yugoslavia on Patreon or via PayPal. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com donate and perform the donation ritual there. It only takes a hot minute. Until proclaiming independence in 2008, Kosovo was always part of another country, each of which attempted to incorporate it into its structure, if not its culture. In the 13th century, the area of today's Kosovo was the heartland of the medieval Serbian Empire and the seat of the Serbian Orthodox Church, which built many important temples and monasteries there. From today's standpoint, the church's liturgies and other rituals counted as performances, that is, acts that promulgated the empire on the territory. In 1389, the expanding Ottomans defeated a Serbian army at Kosovo Polje, the field of the blackbirds, a plain outside present-day Pristina. The event birthed the central Serbian myth that elevates battlefield loss to a moral victory and a kind of a predestination. In this framework, Kosovo was, is, and always will be a part or heart, as the case may be, of Orthodox Serbia. It just happens to be populated by Muslims for the moment. After the Battle of Kosovo, the territory became a permanent part of the Ottoman Empire, which put its stamp on the area. Large numbers of Serbs emigrated, particularly in the 17th century, to Hungary. Albanians immigrated and by the end of the 19th century became the dominant ethnic group. Turks were also among the immigrants. Conflict between Serbs and Kosovo-Albanians then intensified in the 19th century as Serbia gained independence as a kingdom. 
Meanwhile, Kosovo played an important role in the Albanian national awakening. After the First Balkan War in 1912, Kosovo became part of Serbia and in 1918 of the new Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes while nominally remaining in Serbia. In this interwar period, Serbia intensified in Kosovo a policy amounting to colonization in order to quote-unquote correct history, that is, to balance out the demographics there. Land expropriations, expatriations to Turkey, expulsions, ban on speaking Albanian or even closing of schools, discrimination and other steps forced a lot of Albanians to emigrate. Serbia also settled or resettled some areas with loyalist Serbs like war veterans, policemen, government officials and political activists. Violence between Kosovars and colonists flared up frequently. This performance of the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, later Kingdom of Yugoslavia, was anything but popular amongst Kosovo Albanians. One of the faces representing Serbia's and first Yugoslavia's policies was Nikola Pašić, an off and on prime minister for 30 plus years. More on Pašić later. In World War II, most of Kosovo became part of Albania, which was occupied by Italy, and the rest was occupied by Germany and Bulgaria. Further migration of Albanians to and Serbs and Montenegrins from Kosovo took place, in the case of the latter groups, in forcible ways. Some Albanians from Kosovo joined the ranks of Tito's National Liberation Army, but there was minimal partisan activity in Kosovo during most of the war, if not resistance against it. With interwar policies fresh in their minds, Kosovo Albanians were hostile towards the idea of Yugoslavia. Kosovars focused their armed efforts on fighting with the Italians and later Germans and on reprisals against Serbs. It was during this period that Yugoslav communists are said to have concluded that Kosovo Albanians and the future socialist country could only be brought to heel by force. After World War II, Kosovo became an autonomous region within the Socialist Republic of Serbia, itself part of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And in 1963, the Socialist Autonomous Province of Kosovo, a full-fledged province within Serbia on par with Vojvodina. While it certainly cannot be said that Kosovo's participation in the Socialist Yugoslav project was all about the conflict with Serbia, Yugoslavia was certainly present and performed in Kosovo chiefly through Serbia. There was history, from the first Yugoslavia in particular, there was Serbia's centralist and federalist preferences, tendencies and policies, and there was the language, foreign to the rest of the country. To simplify, perhaps grossly, for Kosovo, Yugoslavia was Serbia. The socialist Yugoslav government continued to encourage emigration to Turkey and used the UDBA, Yugoslavia's secret service, to ostensibly stomp out Albanian nationalists and irredentists, as well as people loyal to Albania's Stalinist regime of Enver Hoxha. Laws targeting Islam were also implemented, for example banning the wearing of the hijab or prohibiting religious schools. Tensions between Kosovars and both the Serbian Republican and Yugoslav federal governments persisted throughout the socialist period. Some of the Serbian colonists returned and a new wave of settlement took place. The influx of colonists was marginally offset by outmigration. Young Albanians in particular moved to Belgrade and other Yugoslav cities for menial work and ethnically segregated professions like goldsmiths or bakers. Between 1953 and 1966, some 80,000 Albanians emigrated to Turkey. Still, during the socialist period, Albanians in Kosovo went from 68 to 82 percent of population. Today, Kosovars are about 93 percent of the region's population. Despite the preponderance of Albanians in the province, Serbs and Montenegrins occupied important administrative and security posts. Protests in 1968 resulted in the creation of the University of Pristina and the recognition of Albanian as an official language. Further decentralization and creation or strengthening of Albanian-led institutions took place with the 1974 constitution, which in turn also led to the worsening of Serbian-Albanian relations. 
Albanians felt these were only superficial changes. Tensions were inflamed further in 1981, when mass student protests, originally against bad cantina food and dorm lodging, turned into violent riots demanding republic status for Kosovo and an end to its economic exploitation. The demonstrations were put down by the military and the police under a state of emergency. Hundreds of people were killed or wounded, many more arrested and imprisoned. Increased repression by the reinstalled Serbian administration followed. It intensified further as Serbian nationalism flared up in 1986 when the Serbian Academy of Science and Arts issued its infamous memorandum bemoaning persecution of Serbs and physical, political, legal and cultural genocide against them in the province and calling for a defense of the people and the territory. Albanians continued to protest and advocate for independence and a resistance movement formed. Artists in Kosovo reflected on this atmosphere. Like their counterparts in the Slavic parts of Yugoslavia, young Kosovars made music, including with political undertones, criticizing not just socialism and the Serbian rule, but also the negative portrayals of Albanians in the rest of the country. In their song Microfoni, Microphones, the band Jurmet criticizes the surveillance system and ideological control of Albanians after the student protests of 1981. I am using the song here with the band's kind permission, by their music.
In terms of political performance, Yugoslavia, as represented by Serbia, failed in Kosovo. In the economic realm, the federal policy of equalizing uneven regional economic development across Yugoslavia sent gobs of money to Kosovo. In the 1970s, Kosovo received about 39% of all development aid within Yugoslavia. In the 1980s, 58%. Equalization was also intended to eliminate class and ethnic cleavages by creating a working class solidarity and to express the principle of brotherhood and unity, that is, national equality and solidarity among the Yugoslav nations. If Yugoslavia's ideology of brotherhood and unity reminds you of EU's European solidarity, you're not wrong. Living standards across the province rose during the modernization drive, particularly in Yugoslavia's heyday, the 1970s, but on the whole, the equalization policy failed too. Demographics had something to do with it, with capital unable to catch up with population growth. Economically underdeveloped regions like Kosovo with insufficient infrastructure and undereducated populace were unable to absorb all that money. In other words, Kosovo had the labor, but Yugoslavia was investing capital. Money was also wasted for unintended purposes, allocated to economically unproductive uses like libraries and stadiums, or simply lost. Developed regions like Slovenia and Croatia soon complained about the waste of resources, a process that culminated in the dissolution of Yugoslavia. If this story reminds you of the Dutch or the Germans complaining about the Greeks' profligacy, you wouldn't be too far off. On top of that, Kosovo remained a literal mine for the rest of Yugoslavia. Lead, zinc, silver, coal, magnesium and other raw materials were extracted here but processed in Serbia and elsewhere. In the 1970s, two-thirds of Yugoslavia's coal came from Kosovo. Kosovo's participation in the Yugoslav cultural project was fraught. First of all, the very name of the country, highlighting southern Slavs, excluded non-Slavic populations. Throughout Yugoslavia's existence, Kosovo strove for autonomy, both politically and in cultural terms, from language to education to Islam. Kosovo-Albanian communists certainly had both a positive view of Yugoslavia and were the most integrated in its political, social and cultural structures. Other Kosovo-Albanians sought unification with Albania well into the 1960s. Others still were anti-Yugoslav for other reasons, and the rest fell somewhere in between on the spectrum. What they all had in common was the desire for autonomy. Unlike in other parts of the country, evidence of Yugoslavia performing itself in Kosovo is scant, which could be a reflection of the province's foreign perception within the federation, its neglect in the official narratives, and the local population's attitudes toward the country. Tito visited Kosovo several times, of course, including in April 1975, when the media reported on thousands of Albanians, Serbs, Montenegrins and Turks lining the streets for hours to await his passage. University of Pristina awarded Tito an honorary doctorate, the institution's very first such degree. In his acceptance speech, he highlighted the province's importance and complicated ethnic composition and relations. At a meeting with local party leaders, Tito said, Kosovo is in a neurologic position within Yugoslavia. Kosovo's analogy of Yugoslavia is in a geographical the good Marxist that he was, Tito also said that brotherhood and unity will be insufficient in Kosovo if there is no material foundation for it. 
and that the province was economically lagging behind other parts of the country, a fact some foreign elements were exploiting to undermine Yugoslavia. Let's look at two best-documented ways in which Yugoslavia performed itself in Kosovo, as it did elsewhere, monuments and holidays. Since Kosovo wasn't that involved in a national liberation struggle and no major battles took place here, relatively few monuments were built on its territory throughout the socialist period. And, ironically, those that were erected were creations of non-Albanian designers and architects, and among those mostly Serbian. One of the most important monuments, the Monument to Brotherhood and Unity on the eponymous square in Pristina, is a 1961 work of Miodrag Živković, creator of such well-known monuments as Kadinjača, Ostra and Tjentišće. Now, to have a monument by a Serb in the center of Kosovo's capital would seem to be particularly controversial. The monument's design was meant to alleviate that. A central obelisk consists of three pillars representing Albanian, Serbian and Montenegrin partisans, which by extension symbolize the principle of brotherhood and unity. Thanks to this design, the monument was also called Three Branches, and it was one of the first modernist structures in the city. For many Albanians, the Spomenik, built on the site of a demolished old bazaar, stood for Serbian domination. Attempts were made in the 1990s to destroy it with explosives, and in 2000 the square was renamed after an Albanian guerrilla leader. The monument and the area around it were neglected after the Kosovo War until cooler heads prevailed. A complete renovation took place in 2018. The other monument in Pristina is the Partisans Memorial Cemetery in the Velanja neighborhood. It too was designed by a Serbian architect, Svetislav Licina, and unveiled in the same year, 1961. But unlike the downtown monument, this graveyard of the National Liberation War is on a cultural protection list. The monument comprises curved metallic beams formed into a central globe which is located in the middle of a cobblestone yard surrounded by eight crescent-shaped concrete walls. 220 tablets containing names of fallen fighters buried here were removed in the 1990s. Nowadays, Kosovo Liberation Army veterans are buried nearby, as is Kosovo's first president, Ibrahim Rugova. A few other monuments around Kosovo still stand, most prominently the elevated trough of the Shrine to the Revolution in Mitrovica, a 1973 design by Bogdan Bogdanovic. Others have been removed and destroyed, like the Monument to the Revolution in Peja, or Pech, or the Monument to Borovu Kmirovic and Ramis Sadiku in Landovica near Prizren. The two partisan soldiers, Borovu Kmirovic, a Serb, and Ramis Sadiku, an Albanian, who fought against the fascist occupation during World War II, were executed by Italians in 1943, allegedly by a single bullet while they were hugging. The two communist national heroes were lauded in poems, and schools, streets, and a sports center in Pristina were named after them. The monument was removed in 1999 and replaced with one commemorating fallen KLA fighters. Not everyone in Kosovo was supportive of destroying Yugoslavia monuments. Art historian Vesa Sahatiu said for Kosovo 2.0 that rather than national lines, these monuments should be looked at from the historical context they came out of. They were built to channel the socialist ideology of the time. She concluded that to get rid of these monuments is to opt for collective amnesia. As an aside, I will mention a few architectural gems in Kosovo that remain from and represent the Yugoslav period. Modernist architecture in Pristina is of particular interest here, including the National Library, the Rilinja Media Building, and the aforementioned Boro and Ramis Sports Center. Evo je mlade generacije koja će znati da vodi Jugoslaviju. 
Dan Mladosti, Youth Day, or Day of Youth, was one of the biggest holidays in socialist Yugoslavia. It was celebrated on May 25th, Tito's unofficial birthday, which he had turned into a holiday dedicated to the bodily and mental strength of Yugoslav youth. As early as 1945, youth organizations marked Tito's birthday with a relay race featuring a baton, which was handed over to Tito on Dan Mladosti. Beginning in 1956, the Youth Day celebration was held at the Stadium of the Yugoslav National Army in Belgrade. Youth, soldiers and workers performed mass gymnastics routines, forming various shapes and letters to the tune of contemporary music to symbolize unity and efforts to build socialism. I haven't found statistics as to how many participants were from Kosovo, though I'd imagine the ethnic key, securing proportional representation from all nations and nationalities, would have been used. Having toured many parts of the country, the youth baton finally arrived at the stadium as an embodiment of all other relay batons, which were made on a local level by individual associations, organizations, and enterprises. The phallic object was then delivered to President Tito, containing a birthday message to him. The spectacle was nationally televised and super popular. Youth Day was celebrated until 1987, when it became the first all-Yugoslav holiday to be discarded. Because of the ethnic key, the baton must have started in Kosovo a number of times, though I haven't been able to determine in what years. What is known is that Kosovars delivered the baton three times. In 1971, it was the worker from Pristina, Nazmina Yenjeva. In 1979, Tito received the last baton of his life from Sanja Hiseni, a medical student and Yugoslavia's top shooter from Pristina. And in 1987, the same year Slobodan Milosevic ascended to power in Serbia, an elementary school pupil and a budding young communist from Gilan or Gnilane handed the last ever baton to Hashim Recepi, head of the Alliance of Communist Youth of Yugoslavia. Two decades later, Recepi served as governor of Kosovo Central Bank. Tito's way is the message to the youth of Yugoslavia. Together we can do anything. Happy Day of Youth, Broshai said first in Serbo-Croatian, then in Albanian. Only two years later, in 1989, the Serbian government of Slobodan Milosevic revoked Kosovo's autonomy and gave a speech in front of hundreds of thousands of people at the 600th anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo, rousing Serbian nationalist sentiment and raising the possibility of armed conflict. Kosovar subsequently voted in a referendum for independence, which in turn triggered further repression by Serbia throughout the 1990s.
My today's guest is from the same town as the last baton wielder, Raimond Abroshai. Vyosa Musliu was a toddler when Yugoslavia's final baton of youth arrived at its destination. I was born in 1985. I was born and grew up in Kosovo up until I was 18. Today, Vyosa Musliu is an assistant professor at the Freie Universität in Brussels, focusing on international conflict and EU-Balkans relations. She researches how the European Union places and performs itself in the Western Balkans, and how people there imagine or invoke Europe. By the time I went to officially to school, Kosovo had entered in this phase of um, complete division. The Albanians were removed effectively from all kinds of public jobs, from all kinds of uh, jobs that were remotely connected to um, public or state institutions, as they were called at that time. And there was this uh, organization of the parallel system Kosovo-Albanian leadership began creating parallel government and social structures at the turn of and in the early 1990s after Serbia stripped the province of autonomy and stepped up repression there. The parallel state or parallel society comprised educational and cultural institutions, health services, social assistance networks, political parties, local financial councils and a government in exile, all under the leadership of the Democratic League of Kosovo, LDK, and its leader Ibrahim Rugova. Though the peril state was for the most part unplanned for, the idea emerged that if Kosovars proved to the world they can run the territory as a country, they would eventually be accepted and recognized as an independent state the way Yugoslav republics were. Musliu calls the 1990s the apartheid decade. We had turned our private homes into schools. Private homes became our art schools where I learned to also play piano. Uh, Private schools became also theaters where you would go and see a performance. Uh, So in that respect, unofficially or de facto, I did not have any memory that I grew up in Yugoslavia or that I grew up in Serbia. I grew up in this parallel system that was both striving to function and at the same time to resist uh, an oppressive policy that was directed to this particular ethnic group, to the Albanians. It would only confront me when I would see an official document, a passport, when we would travel with my family as a kid, uh, when I would see the name Yugoslavia or Serbia there, and it would remind me that, uh, yes, officially this is where I am. Um, But it was also not necessarily, uh, not always uh, a state that you would think it exists there, because that state, that whatever was left, of that state throughout the early 90s and onwards, it was also not a state that you could claim any ownership or or any agency in it. It was uh, something to fear from, something that you had to resist from. The public sphere overall had become an enemy towards Kosovo Albanians. And of course, at the time, I did not have the intellectual capacities to articulate any of this. But you do understand that. You do Uh, sense that atmosphere, that vibe all around the public spaces. And what do I mean by that? For instance, I grew up in uh, Jelan, in Gnilane, which is in the east, southeast, you could say, part of Kosovo. It's something over an hour drive from Vranje, uh, let's say, in inner Serbia. And it was a city that used to be inhabited uh, roughly by the same percentage of Albanians and Serbs during the the 90s. But irrespective of the fact that I lived downtown and I lived in a walking distance from the courthouse, the the police headquarters and the National Theatre, 
I would never see Albanians occupying these kinds of public spaces. Albanians were organized in the suburbias, in the digi uh, neighborhoods. That's where their social, political, intellectual, and economic life was taking place. But you would not see them as part of the public life, let alone part of the public institution. So in that sense, it was rather an ambivalent kind of uh, life, or as I like to call it sometimes, it was bracketed life in a way. It was just happening so that it could um, make possible a different kind of transition or a transition into something where you can claim some sort of ownership, agency, but also some kind of connection to the state, to the public sphere, to the uh, public institutions that are supposed to be there to serve you. It was always a bit of a cognitive dissonance to see uh, the name officially and also to live there through this bracketed life. But you're also living there as a subject that is not desired. There was always at the backdrop of the political relations, there was this idea that somehow these people, these Albanians will just vanish out of thin air and this, this space will, it would be rendered into a, a non-Albanian sphere as a whole. Kosovars were supportive of leaving Rump Yugoslavia. In a 1995 survey, 43% said they wanted to join Albania and 57% preferred independence. The parallel society strategy failed to achieve independence, and so Kosovars turned to armed insurgency as a way to achieve their goals. Between 1992 and 1995, Kosovo Albanians carried out 135 attacks against Yugoslav forces. At this point, of course, Yugoslavia consisted only of Serbia and Montenegro. The insurgency erupted into a full-fledged war in February 1998, when Serbia mounted a counterinsurgency campaign. The war lasted until June of the following year, aided by NATO strikes against the Serbs. Up to 2,000 civilians died, and some 800,000 were displaced. The full-blown war was taking place just a five-hour drive from, from my own house, in the house where I was living with my family, and as the war was taking place in cities like Jakova and Drenica and Mitrovica as well, we were protesting in Pristina, in Gilan, in Ferizai, in other places where a full-blown war was not there yet. And I do remember also skipping a number of classes, even in the parallel system, to join the protesters. It is thanks to the so-called humanitarian intervention that the then U.S. President Bill Clinton has a statue in Pristina and his Secretary of State, the late Madeleine Albright, a bust. A few months ago, Etvio Samuslio tweeted two photographs from June 1989. In the first photo, her compatriots raise Lieutenant John Martinek of the U.S. Marines in their arms as his NATO unit entered Gilane. Michael Williamson of the Washington Post won a Pulitzer Prize for that photograph. It was the happiest day of my life, Musliu tweeted. In the second photo, Musliu is standing next to Martinek in a group photo of soldiers. She was his translator. I have many stories with and about John and the U.S. troops that I hope to publish one day, Musliu tweeted. But for now, I am looking to find John wherever he may be. Twitter came through. Two weeks later, Musliu tweeted, It's been wonderful to reconnect with John after a lifetime, thanks to many of you. He shared excerpts from a book documenting the arrival of U.S. troops in our neighborhood. Musliu included a photo of the book. For me, that was a signal, not so much or not only that the war has ended, but that that bracketing of life, that uh, suppression of your own body, of your own persona to be seen in your town, to be seen existing, that had also ended. And I think for me and for many people around me, that was the bigger meaning of it all. It, it almost seemed like the end of the war was an entry point to something 
much, uh, much bigger. For Muslio personally, this experience was the foundation of her career. As an Albanian growing up in the former Yugoslavia, as an Albanian growing up in Kosovo in the late 80s and the beginning of the 90s, discussions uh, of liberation, resistance, and the whole sense of structural uh, subjugation and oppression was not so much an intellectual interest or endeavor for me as much as it was an embodied experience. And uh, somehow that embodied experience brought me then to my studies later on in life. On the societal level? After the end of the war in 1999, we did return, Albanians did return to official schools. It was uh, the first time that uh, many of us entered, for instance, in the building of the of the high school of the gymnasium. Uh, it was the first time I played volleyball with my team at the sports hall, at the city's sports hall, because that was exclusively for the Serbian kids. So I had never even stepped foot in that. We had played in uh, makeshift stadiums and makeshift uh, sports hall of uh, deserted schools in the outskirts of the city or uh, recently constructed uh, schools with the donations from diaspora that helped fuel and maintain the parallel system. Only after 1999, I started to actually live and take ownership of the city where I had been born and I had lived uh, up until that point. After the war, Kosovo was placed under international administration. Given Kosovo's and Kosovo-Albanians' experience in all three iterations of Yugoslavia, their assessment or memory of the former country should come as no surprise. Sergei Flere and Andrei Kiribish's 2009 poll of university students in the former Yugoslav republics found that respondents who grew up a generation after its dissolution predominantly assessed the state as a political entity in favorable terms. Only the respondents from Kosovo gave Yugoslavia scores lower than 8 out of the 15 maximum points. Furthermore, the two ethnic groups that had developed the fiercest and most long-lasting anti-Yugoslav movements, the Kosovo-Albanians and the Croats, displayed the most negative assessments of Yugoslavia today. Conversely, positive attitudes towards Yugoslavia are lowest in Kosovo, followed by Croatia. A 2016 Gallup poll asked the people of the former Yugoslavia the following question. In general, did the breakup of Yugoslavia benefit or harm this country? Residents of Serbia rued Yugoslavia's demise the most, with 81% saying it was harmful. The people of Kosovo missed Yugoslavia the least, with only 10% saying it was harmful. Relatedly, only 8% of Albanians in Kosovo thought Yugoslavia's breakup was bad. The result held across age groups. University of Pristina sociologist Ibrahim Berisha says, quote, Yugoslavia was created out of a cultural and political movement that was built on geographic closeness and historical, national, and linguistic links among southern Slavs. It was a creature that could not survive because it was not built on principles of equality. Albanians suffered in every way, and therefore Yugoslavia has no place in their political consciousness today. In the end of the aughts, Stephanie Schwander-Sievers found that Kosovo's post-war culture of commemoration was marked by a notable absence of any visible or audible signs of the memory of Yugoslav socialism. The only exceptions were occasional artists and members of the cosmopolitan elite. This commemorative silence, writes Schwantner Sievers, is the effect of war trauma. Monuments had been destroyed, statues beheaded or removed, and all replaced with memorials and statues to Kosovo-Albanian heroes. Fighters from the 98-99 war with Serbia have many. 
Ibrahim Rugova, Mother Teresa, and the medieval feudal lord Skanderbeg have a few, and Bill Clinton has one. The newborn typographic sculpture outside the Pristina Sports Center marked the proclamation of independence in 2008. Streets were renamed too. The Tito Boulevard in Pristina is now Mother Teresa Boulevard, renamed from the Serbian administration's Vidovdan Boulevard. In fact, most renamed streets erased Serbian names, not necessarily those from the Yugoslav era. However, nostalgia for Yugoslavia or Tito exists on the private level. Schwander Sievers found that among people with lived experience in Yugoslavia, private Tito nostalgia was not much different from similar groups in other former republics. Memories were positive mostly for the late 1970s and most of the 1980s periods, particularly if they were memories of childhood. But these memories were underpinned by loss of security, of living standards, of perks like free education or healthcare. For many people, they were the first of their family to go to school or university. They recalled various celebrations and events that reinforced a sense of togetherness. And they thought of Tito as a father figure who cared for them, who guaranteed their security and whose death spelled disaster. Any positives in memory are outweighed by the wounds of the country's tragic end, which in Kosovo extended to the late 1990s. Memories of the recent trauma from the war supplanted those of the more distant good times of inter-ethnic friendship and cooperation during Tito's times. This wounded character of memory is likely to have contributed to today's public silence and avoidance of publicly discussing any memories of Yugoslavia amongst the Albanians in Kosovo, concludes Schwandner Sievers. In 2015, the Serbian daily Danas reported on the panel Yugoslavia as History organized in Pristina by the Helsinki Committee. The reporter said that older people all over Pristina would speak with her in Serbian, or perhaps Serbo-Croatian, asked her about Belgrade and shared their stories about it, especially those who studied or worked there. Younger generations didn't speak Serbian, and even those who did preferred to speak English, and the pop culture of the former country was unfamiliar to them, though they did know artists from the former Yugoslavia, such as the Bosnian Dubioza Collective. Yugoslavia's erasure served an important purpose in Kosovo. Eradicating all signs of one memory is the first step to creating a new one. Loss and liberation all folded into one. Schwander Sievers asserts that, Public memory of Yugoslav socialism was neither visible nor spoken about in public in post-war Kosovo until the independence declaration. But political reference, which suddenly did re-emerge, was aggressively anti-Yugoslav. The cover of the Express magazine from February 2008 is telling. Below a blue-tinted photo of Nikola Pašić, white-tinted photo of Josip Brostito, and red-tinted photo of Slobodan Milosevic, a bold headline declares, Fuck you, that's Y-U, 1913-2008. In their song Change, the Kosovo band Diadema denounces the strife that continues to persist in Kosovo and calls for the titular change as a path forward. The song uses samples from Milosevic's Gazimestan speech. Kombetar Uskana, founder of Diadema and the record label Defy Them, kindly gave permission to use this song. Buy their music.
February 17, 2008, the Kosovo Assembly declared independence. The country remains only partially recognized, with 117 countries recognizing it as of early this year. The number fluctuates as Serbia wages its de-recognition campaign and Kosovo succeeds in its own recognition push. Russia has vetoed Kosovo's membership in the United Nations. My country, Slovakia, is among five European Union member states, along with Cyprus, Greece, Romania and Spain, that have not recognized Kosovo. Though I understand why, I am not super happy about that, particularly since it was just 30 years ago that Slovakia claimed its own independence. Vyosa Musliu left Kosovo in 2004 to study in Albania, and then in 2008, shortly after her country proclaimed independence, she moved to Belgium, where she still lives and works. 
It is at the point of independence that Musliu launches her investigation into European Union's presence and performance in her country. The idea here is that ever since the intervention of NATO in 1999, Kosovo has served both as a pretext and as a context from where structures of liberal interventionism, primarily the EU, but also the US, NATO and other actors, including the World Bank and the IMF, have tried what they call best international standards, highest European standards, highest international standards, usually invoked very vaguely, to put in place in Kosovo. Now, what made Kosovo particularly amenable space to these modes of intervention was precisely its undecided political status. So from 1999 onwards, up until 2008, you could see structures of Western interventionism have been gradually and systematically building institutions uh, of a state. They have been involved in processes that are quintessential about state building. But at the same time, they had to silence the element of the state because the status of Kosovo as such was still under discussion and these discussions were not always transparent. Whereas the then Prime Minister of Kosovo, Hashim Tachi, declared the country to be an independent and democratic state, the official declaration says Kosovo is an independent and sovereign state. Muslio maintains that the tension between sovereignty and democracy matters, wondering whether for the sponsors and leaders of Kosovo the two are essentially the same. A former leader in the Kosovo Liberation Army, Tachi was in 2016 elected president of Kosovo. He resigned the position in 2020 after the Kosovo Specialist Chambers and Specialist Prosecutor's Office indicted him and others for crimes against humanity and war crimes, including murder, enforced disappearance of persons, persecution and torture dating back to the 1990s conflict. He is awaiting trial at a prison in The Hague. The place where Europe's influence was the most visible in 2008 was Kosovo's flag. Up until the Declaration of Independence, Albanians had been using their own uh, national flag, so did the Serbs and so did other ethnic uh, minorities in Kosovo, be them Roma, Turks, Gorani, Bosniaks, etc. In 2008, 17th of February, in the parliamentary session, there is uh, a man in a suit that goes right next to the Speaker of the Parliament and helps him unveil a flag in bright blue color, which is at the backdrop of the map of Kosovo in white, in yellow, followed with stars. And the Speaker of the Parliament announced this as this is the flag of Kosovo, this is the flag of the newest uh, state in Europe. Now, I was watching that uh, extraordinary uh, parliamentary uh, session from home, and it, this was the first moment I could see the projected uh, flag of what was going to be officially independent country of Kosovo, and so did millions of um, people from their homes. Now, the way how this flag came to be, it was done through a through an international competition in which uh, there was a call for flags that had been issued some months before. And many people, graphic designers, artists, journalists even had applied with their proposals for the flag. The winner was this graphic designer uh, who works and lives in, in Pristina. And when I interviewed him for the book, he also said something very interesting. He, he said that both as a designer, but also as an ethnically Albanian, the conditions of the competition, of the flag competition, were quite constraining. They were both constraining his ethnic identification, but also his uh, artistic freedoms. 
because the call for flags had very clear prerogatives of what types of colors, symbols, designs can go in that particular production of a flag. He did reflect quite a bit how he took it very pragmatically to design something that could win, but it was not something that was either representing his best work as a designer or neither representing his national or ethnic ideals of what the flag of his own country should look like. At the moment that the Declaration of Independence of Kosovo and the unveiling of these elements of national identification, what was announced is not just a new state is born. The more important message seems to me is that a new democratic state is born and a new European, future European state, which is to come, is born on that very day. So it's a projected European state that will take its final desired form at some point in the near future. And this, in a way, keeps Kosovo hostage of its form, of its final form that is always to come, that is always on arrival, but it's never here, it's never present, it's never tangible. So it's always some sort of a, of a mirage that appears somewhere but you have to take a very long and arduous journey to reach to that. It reminds me of uh, how communism was the old mirage that we were we were supposed to reach uh, through the development of socialism. The flag is uh, one of the, I'm very prominent, of course, but one of the examples of uh, how Europe performs itself in uh, Kosovo and other countries. So uh, what do you mean by performance? How does this actually translate into real life? How does Europe actually perform itself on a more everyday level, which I understand is your focus? And, and what do you mean by perform anyway? When I say that a certain performance has taken place with the unveiling of the flag and with the Declaration of Independence, uh, also with the announcement of the call for national anthems later, which led to the making of Europe, a melody called Europe being the national anthem of Kosovo. is the possibility then to understand how Europe places itself in third countries and how Europe performs itself in third countries, and at the same time, how uh, subjects, populations, or countries perform their vision, their imaginaries, if not their fantasies of what Europe is. So when Kosovo's political elite, and you could say certain parts of the public opinion, embraced these new uh, symbols, embraced that new rhetoric of a European state to come that was in the making, they were also projecting and performing their adherence to processes related to European integration, but at the same time to some sort of identification with Europe. Uh, now, this is not pertinent to Kosovo alone. We have seen how following the fall of communism in many countries in Central and Eastern Europe, there was this return of the rhetoric of many elite groups, but also leaders in countries of Central and Eastern Europe to invoke that we are returning to Europe. We're not joining the EU after the fall of communism. We're just returning to where our roots were. 
can confirm definitely for Czechoslovakia and later Slovakia. Love for Europe was in the air all the time before Slovakia's accession to the European Union, not just in terms of aligning the legislation and systems with EUs, but also in the public discourse. After the dark decades of forced membership in the Warsaw Pact and the Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, Soviet Union's military and economic tools of subjugating and consolidating its satellite states behind the Iron Curtain, we were resuming our membership in the community or family of European countries, of which we most definitely are one. Bye-bye East, good to be back in the West. And Kosovo also, much like the rest of the countries of the Western Balkans, did engage in this rhetoric that were basically embracing what we think we essentially are, but at the same time problematically phrasing that, because if you look at the discourse of the political elite in Kosovo, sometimes it is unclear whether Europe is a final destination, whether it's a journey, so it's uh, admittedly your not European, but you're in the process of becoming one. At other times, you see in their discourse a conviction that we are European. The EU is also very much uh, playing in this rhetoric. I remember a couple of years back uh, when Federica Mogherini came to speak to Kosovo's parliament. Federica Mogherini was from 2014 to 2019 European Union's High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy and Vice President of the European Commission. She said uh, something in a very reassuring, uh, if slightly condescending tone to the members of the parliament. She said, I quote, you don't have to become European, you already are. And the, the mechanism, the thinking mechanism that should be activated here is what is wrong with not being European? Why should everyone be European? Why should everyone engage in certain performances to showcase, to prove a certain belonging or a certain imaginary belonging to Europe or in Europe. In that sense, what I mean with what performativity is, is not necessarily just something that is uh, staged. So performativity is not performance in the sense that it is not a single event. It's not that you set the stage, the troupe is unveiled, there is a certain act that goes on, and then the show is over and everything goes back to normal. That would be a performance if we were to think of it theatrically at least. Performativity, unlike performance, has a citational uh, characteristic. It has a reiterative process. It is repetitive. And in being repetitive comes into life. In that sense, by repeating a certain adherence or a certain belonging to Europe or a certain promise that you belong to Europe, there is this uh, mechanism that makes that not as a simple discourse, but gives it a flesh and meaning. Keeping with the theatrical uh, <laughs> parallel or metaphor, you know, you talk about repetition. So the message gets repeated, right? So what are some of the scenes, some of the ex- additional examples that this message gets delivered? So we talked about the Declaration of Independence. We talked about the flag, yeah. the, the anthem. What about on the everyday level, um, some other practices, events that directly impact you or people who live in uh, Kosovo? What I have seen from the cases of Kosovo, Bosnia-Herzegovina, North Macedonia and Albania is that this performativity through which the political elite in the countries of the Western Balkans is involved, but also the performativity through which EU technocrats and EU leaders are involved with, does also have a tone of performance as well. There is quite a lot of staging that goes in everyday life and everyday activities to 
bring to life that notion of Europe. For instance, the public debates in the media about the right to wear a headscarf in, in public places or the way how religiosity or a belonging to a particular religion in public spaces or the idea for having a secular state in Kosovo at all costs has been framed. Those debates have taken place in primetime TV debates every single night at the backdrop of an idea of how do we make sure that our journey to Europe is not derailed because of 200 plus Kosovo Albanians joining the war in Syria or having particular legislation that would reinforce the religious uh, rights of Muslims in particular and how this sort of identification with Islam would, let's say, completely derail Kosovo from its European path. This repetition in everyday life, so in in TV public debates, but also in protests, in street art, now brings aspects of Europe, Europeanization and European integration, far more at the societal level. So we're not talking anymore about just Europeanization or European integration as this methodical process that takes place in between elites, the closing and the opening of chapters. 35 chapters of the Acquis Communautaire, that is European Union law, are the areas in which an EU candidate country must align its legislation and administrative and institutional structures with the European Union's. Delegation meetings or high-level meetings in Brussels and in the capital, we're talking about the rhetoric of becoming Europeans, of Europeanizing that takes place in protests, in public debates, in uh, LGBT plus uh, pride parades that are continuously also organized and invoked against the backdrop of belonging to Europe or appearing as European. So it's all Europe all the time, everywhere, Um, it would seem. If you read the reports from Rainbow Europe or any other international organization that works on human rights or uh, sexual minority rights, you see commonly a reference that countries of the Western Balkans are the most homophobic by this and that matrix, by this and this benchmark. And Kosovo in particular stands out as you know being on top of that list as well. However, unlike in many of the countries of the region, The pride parades in Pristina, for instance, were rather uh, surprisingly peaceful. You would not see police officers like you would see in Belgrade, for instance, uh, or in uh, other cities making a special corridor for people marching for the pride parade. It seemed like just a happy, homogeneous uh, crowd celebrating the rainbow flag marching down the Mother Teresa Square in Pristina. Now, What you do see also in these pride parades, there is this tradition of having at the very front of the pride parades the Minister of European Integration next to the US ambassador, next to the EU ambassador, next to the Dutch ambassador usually, the mayor of Pristina would be there, the president would be there, if not the prime minister as well. So you see this deliberate staging, this deliberate support for the pride parade. Now, When I talked to the activists in Pristina, they were very aware of this meta-performance that takes place during the Pride Parade. In their words, they were pretty uh, aware that what the politicians are doing there is to showcase to the sponsors of Kosovo's independence 
that by supporting the Pride Parade, they are testifying the Europeanness. So they're not there necessarily because they care so much about the LGBT plus uh, community rights, but because there is a bigger project at stake there, and that is essentially the legitimacy of uh, sponsors of the independence as well. Now, uh, there is also this other element that was particularly striking, The absence of the police, the absence of security forces in the Pride Parade is only aesthetic. Of course, there were police officers all around. And as LGBT activists in Pristina confirmed, they do this constantly with the coordination of Kosovo's police as well. However, because the image that Kosovo wants to send abroad is this peaceful, seamless, uh, natural flow of, of people in a pride parade, you would have police officers in civil clothing in the pride parade so that no image of uh, organizing a particular pride parade or regulating a pride parade would not be uh, aesthetically visible. So you see, there are multiple layers of the performance, and it's not just the, mm-hmm. the Kosovo's elite, but for instance, you also have the big chunk of uh, local NGOs who, no matter what they are working on, no matter what their expertise is, who also massively show up in the Pride Parade, because as many would testify, this is also a moment, an opportunity for these small NGOs to show to the big donors that we're on the right path by being here, Mm -hmm. we're worthy of donations of more projects. And you also see EU technocrats at the very front of the Pride Parade, and they are also engaging in some sort of performance because they are showing to their uh, constituents in Brussels that their project in Kosovo, whatever it is, either through the EU mission specifically or through the work of individual embassies, is working because look at us, we're all here, we're all happy together in a Whereas the reality is slightly more complicated. We have multiple occasions of former Kosovo's political elite declaring not very friendly towards the LGBT plus community. But you don't see that, you don't hear about that when they are engaging in this pride parade in these events where, like I said before, a multi-layered performance takes place. Sticking with the theater analogy, let's introduce the cast of characters and their audience. Much like there is a multi-layered performance, there are multiple actors in Kosovo that are involved with particular performances. Uh, In the case of Kosovo, it becomes a bit more pronounced because of that liminal cohabitation of many international organizations, the power that certain embassies also effectively have uh, inside Kosovo, and also the frictions in between different ethnic groups and how they invoke their ownership to Kosovo as well. So all of this gets a bit more pronounced. It becomes much easily discernible. Hand in hand with that, there's also a multiplicity of stages and audiences where these everyday performances, everyday imaginaries of Europe take place. There is the obvious stage, maybe the very first one would be the stage in Kosovo itself. So different interest groups, I think, are naturally trying to carve out influence and territory for themselves. Many times these performances of Europe or performances that want to showcase a certain Europeanness of Kosovo, when they are done from Kosovo's political elites or its leaders, 
the audience is not necessarily the constituents from whom they get their mandates and their votes and their legitimacy. Uh, many other academics have written how in the cases of the Western Balkans, we have an inversion of sovereignty. So the sovereignty, the legitimacy of the political elites in the Western Balkans is much more prevalent and existing in Brussels and in Washington than it is in the places where these political elites operate. So for these political elites, for the one in Kosovo at least, the spectrum of institutions of Western interventionism could be one audience. The other audience is the technocrats, the politicians in Brussels, Berlin, and Washington as well. So there is this continuous discussion and share of tropes, share of uh, concepts, rites, rituals that are uh, more often than not directed to the sponsors of independence rather than to the constituents inside Kosovo. It would almost seem then that Kosovo and other countries that you talk about in your book are once again a kind of a playground or a, I don't know showcase of, of Western uh, ideologies, Western money, if you will. Here we are, actors, you know, European actors on the stage. That's these countries that are outside of European Union performing all of this that you've talked about. You talk quite a bit about balkanization, quite a bit about the othering. So it seems this, this is just another manifestation of these uh, phenomena. Well, that would be the more obvious and the logical deduction that one can have from all of this. But at the same time, I cannot help but also uh, observe the very stark contradiction in which EU technocrats, EU officials are also entangled in this whole discussion of performing Europe and also invoking Europeanness for subjects and populations in the countries of the Western Balkans. So while the EU leaders and technocrats have continuously reiterated the mantra that uh, the future of the Western Balkans is in Europe or the future of Kosovo is in Europe. At the same time, what we have seen over the past 10 plus years is a reluctance, if not, uh, well, in the case of Kosovo, is borderline hostility towards the idea of allowing these countries, these so loudly proclaimed Europeans, to actually uh, formalize or actualize their Europeanness. If we look at the discussions or the politics of EU enlargement, uh, we have probably one of the lowest points in, uh, in, in recent decades, in recent years. But somehow it is rather surprising how all of these performances about Europe being the quintessential place and space of desire and longing for the countries of the Western Balkans, while at the same time, all the crises, the multiple crises that the EU is faced with, all the political conundrums uh, that the EU and EU countries are faced with, also the reluctance to admit new member states to the EU, these somehow do not impact that performance of Europe elsewhere. So no matter what happens in the EU, the ability of the European Union to keep alive this rhetoric of performing a certain desire and a certain project of Europe for the Western Balkans as quintessential and hegemonic 
is at the very least interesting, if not paradoxical, or if not, I cannot find any other word how to phrase Hypocritical. It. <laughs> uh, well, that's too, <laughs> that's too hypocritical, but it's not. There's also a tint of, uh, it appears as a schizophrenic exercise. You know, you, you're doing everything possible to make it abundantly clear that I don't want this. But at the same time, you continue with the performance of this is what it is. So It just reminds me of what you talked about earlier, where we're becoming or trying to become European, but we'll never quite get there for reasons that you you mentioned. And this is the kind of the same thing. Hey, uh, be like us, but don't quite be one of us. The European Union has an office in Kosovo, which ensures permanent political and technical dialogue between Kosovo and the EU institutions. The EU Special Representative offers advice and support to the government of Kosovo, coordinates the EU presence and promotes human rights and fundamental freedoms. And the European Union Rule of Law Mission in Kosovo provides support to relevant rule of law institutions in Kosovo. How do the people of Kosovo at this point feel about all this, would you say? There is this um, continuous repetition in policy and academic debates as well of um, Numbers and percentages that show Kosovo to be the most uh, pro-European country in the Western Balkans as well, while at the same time Kosovo is uh, the only one that does not enjoy any of the perks, let's say, of being the most favoring EU country. The last countries in the Western Balkans to uh, profit from visa liberalization uh, with the EU that has been in 2009 and 2010. For Kosovo, for 1.8 million Kosovars, this is still not a possibility. Now, this has to also be understood at the backdrop of a bigger set of relations between the EU and Kosovo. And it's not limited to the status of Kosovo as such, or to the fact that uh, five EU member states do not recognize Kosovo. The EU is still the biggest financial donor in Kosovo. It still has in place what was initially EU's greatest CSDP mission in place, the European Union rule of law mission that was operational and still is in much smaller capacity in Kosovo. So you have this uh, massive financial and human concentration of uh, the European Union inside of Kosovo at the backdrop of making this place, making this country uh, a European country par excellence. So uh, a country that embraces EU symbols, uh, that has enshrined in its constitution the best European practices from gender rights to sexual minority rights to what have you. But at the same time, you also do not enjoy the very basic liberty or the very basic freedom for visa-free travel towards the EU. This stalemate for a very long time did not seem like it was having an impact in how Kosovars were feeling towards the European uh, Union. However, recent trends or at least anecdotal evidence and from what I observe now and then by going back to to Kosovo, there is this loss of patience and loss of understanding with this kind of approach from the EU towards Kosovo, which Mm -hmm. at a broader spectrum, it also puts into a bigger question mark the whole purpose of having the EU so comprehensively involved in daily matters inside Kosovo as well. Uh, I do see a lot of uh, change in uh, sentiments, how people, especially young people in Kosovo, feel towards the EU. 
but then again, that essentially boils down to the maintenance of the visa regime that the EU still uh, has in place. A 2020 International Republican Institute survey found that 93% of Kosovo residents support their new country's accession to the EU, by far the biggest share in all the countries of the Western Balkans. Kosovo plans to apply for EU membership by the end of this year. Next on Remembering Yugoslavia. Growing up as a kid in school, I'd say I'm Yugoslavian. A historical marker in Astoria, Oregon, says the town's first neighborhood was also home to the city's working class, including Yugoslavian immigrants. Who were these so-called Yugoslavs, and what remains of that tiny community here? On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, the lost Yugoslavs of Astoria, Oregon. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts, and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information and a transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com. If you like the show, please support its making and me in making it. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate and contribute today. Thank you. Hvala. Falaminderit. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich. Interludes courtesy of the Kosovo Security Force Orchestra. Music by Diadema and Jurmet used with permission and gratitude. Buy their music. Additional music by B.T. Tripit and Petar Argic, licensed under Creative Commons. I am Petar Korchniak. Miru Pavšim. Miru Pavšim.